Let's get started by thanking our wonderful sponsors who make this show possible every week. We can't thank them enough. With more screen usage and indoor time, myopia, also known as nearsightedness, is increasing and getting worse in children. Now, certified eye doctors can prescribe my sight one day, the first and only FDA-approved soft contact lens to slow myopia progression in age-appropriate children. Visit coopervision.com to find a Brilliant Futures certified eye doctor near you. Hello, and welcome to the Open Your Eyes podcast. I'm Dr. Kerry Geld, the host of the documentary, Open Your Eyes. Please visit the film's website at openyoureyes2020.com, featuring interviews with more than 50 optometrists from around the country sharing information on eye care and eye disease. If you're new here and you like our interviews, press like, subscribe, share, and hit the bell to get notifications of great new interviews. Also, please leave comments. It's estimated that over 10 million traumatic brain injuries occur annually across the globe and that over 57 million people have been hospitalized with a traumatic brain injury during their lifetime. Today's guest, Dr. Deanne Fitzgerald, OD, is the president of the Neurooptometric Rehabilitation Association, NORA, an interdisciplinary group whose goal is to help patients with acquired brain injury. Dr. Fitzgerald practices optometry in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, which provides low vision services and vision rehabilitation with an emphasis on vestibular and visual skills. Deanne, thank you for joining me today. Thank you, thanks for having me. So tell us, what is neurooptometric rehabilitation? Sure, so what ends up happening is that it's the brain, right? So what ends up happening is the eyes consume quite a bit of part of that brain. So 70% of our brains dedicated to vision in some fashion, 80% of all sensory goes through our eyes, and 100% of people will have some sort of uh, eye aff affect uh, associated with a traumatic brain injury, stroke, or concussion. So an optometrist would normally do just a structure exam, which is very important. Where neurooptometry comes involved is we look at the functional part of that exam and how it relates to vision. So is it just people with brain injury, or do you also do people that have neurodegenerative disease, such as Parkinson, Alzheimer's, and other neurological conditions? Absolutely. So any neurodegenerative affect, so dementia, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's is all in a part of that because it's your brain that runs it, right? And the eyes are such an integral part of determining what's going to happen for that patient and how we need to intervene uh, with some sort of therapy. So how long has therapy been done for people with eyes for, that have neurodegenerative disease or TBIs, concussion, et cetera? Well, concussion diagnoses have been around since 600 AD. And what's happened is that it's really been the NFL that has catapulted it forward. So with that $7 million uh, plus settlement, the NFL knew where it was getting itself involved with concussion. So what ends up happening is that in the 1970s, there started to be more of a connection between the eyes and the brain, although it's been there the whole time. And so now it's getting better traction because we have better technologies to show how uh, the eyes and the brain work together. And when did this specialty in optometry kind of start? Oh, neurooptometry is probably that, that uh, catch-all. has probably been around for at least 40, 50, 60 years. And it's probably gotten more traction because now we have more patients that are being diagnosed with concussion, traumatic brain injury, stroke, 
And then of course, neurodegenerative affect and people are living longer. You know, medicine is keeping these people uh, alive longer. And so as a result, then we have to come up with better ways to give them quality of life. So what is the difference between concussion, TBI and CTE? So concussion would be uh, technically, uh, it's where you have more of a functional affect that happens. So what happens is that not all mild traumatic brain injuries are concussions, but all concussions are a mild traumatic brain injury. And what happens is that if that person gets a CT scan and they have a brain bleed, if that anything shows up on imaging, that's not a concussion. So 99.9% .9 of people who get a concussion have a functional affect that occurs with that, not something that's structure or on imaging. And then CTE, technically CTE cannot be diagnosed unless you're taking and doing an autopsy on that brain. Now the suspicion of CTE is that continual assault uh, with a concussion and traumatic brain injury. But we, we also fail to talk about what kinds of uh, supplements these athletes get into and how that could progress any type of brain trauma. So what kind of supplements do they get into and how can they progress brain trauma? Well, anytime we're dealing with uh, any type of um, uh, performance enhancing drug will have some sort of affect on the brain. And we have to kind of take a look at that. The other thing is, is a lot of people to use an example, C, uh, CD, CBD oil and um, hemp. A lot of people use that in a concussion or a seizure-like affect, and they say how helpful it is. But once again, what, do we, what target are we looking at? So can CBD oil and hemp, uh, marijuana be dangerous to the brain? The answer is absolutely yes. So if an athlete is already smoking or taking uh, CBD or, or some form of THC, does, if it's just CBD but no THC involved with it, does it matter or does it have to be like more like street type of marijuana that we're talking about? Yeah, so any of that could be harmful. Not everyone's built the same. So the genetic makeup and how that person does their life uh, will also influence what something does to them. So the difficulty is, is that CBD uh, is a great for seizure disorder and perhaps migraine. But the problem is, is that we don't always know what target we're looking at. And so that's what makes that so dangerous is we don't have good targets. But you know what? In our prescription medications, sometimes we don't have good targets either. So it, it is a, it's, it's just an up and down to figure out how this works. And you mentioned performance enhancing drug increases the risk of concussion. Are we talking about testosterone or what other types be, besides CBD are we talking about? Well, you, you can look at nitric oxide. You can look at your uh, steroids, uh, your... Um, Anabolic uh, steroids or your, uh, uh, why can't I think of the word right now? Anabolic. But, thank you. Uh, so once again, anything in a particular substance can cause challenges to that uh, blood-brain barrier to that brain. Before you said that if they see a bleed on the scan, then it's not a concussion. What does it mean if there is a bleed? What is it? Then you're going to have a mild traumatic brain injury or a moderate uh, traumatic brain injury. That pulls that out of that concussion realm. So with the concussion diagnosis, it's, it's suspicion of injury and symptom and symptom provocation. And so that's, that's the true diagnosis of a concussion. We don't have any biomarker yet that tells us whether or not someone's had a concussion. And so we look to certain kinds of things in order to do that. 86% of people uh, who have a true concussion will get better in 26 days. 
And then you have the 20 to 30% malingers that have problems that continue on. And in the adult population right now, if you have symptoms, concussion symptoms that are lasting longer than seven days, you are considered now a post-concussion uh, patient and we need to get that patient moving so we get them better. You mentioned biomarkers. Uh, what are, if we look at some of the things we do in optometry, OCT, uh, VEP, can these things be helpful for seeing who may be at risk or may, who may have had a, a concussion? So uh, certainly there's been some studies out there to try and link uh, a concussion with OCT changes. In my practice, when I've done that, I have not been able to elicit a swollen uh, optic nerve relative to an OCT finding. And part of that is because we don't have baselines on that particular uh, realm. Uh, others, it's the age group that the OCT may not be matched to. So that's, that's a problem. The VEP, uh, once again, using the VEP to determine whether or not someone would do well with, say, a tint or a plus lens and how that eye, the front part of the eye, communicates to the back part of the eye, that really doesn't tell us whether or not it's a concussion. So the problem is, is that that's not mainstream. For instance, I've had several uh, optometrists call me up and say, well, their VEP wasn't correct and this is what I did. How do we get them to know that this is a concussion? That's not in the realm of traditional medicine. And that's part of the problem. We have to stay within the realm of traditional medicine in order to get these folks better. And that's been a hardship to try and figure that out. You know, there's a new instrument from Conan. It's called iKinetics, which measures pupil function. Uh, can that be helpful? It can be. The, the problem with uh, just looking at the pupil alone, and I've done a lot of studying that, is that we do have a situation where you have a sympathetic parasympathetic situation. So you can have hippus, you can have a larger pupil uh, because of a brainstem uh, shock. And so once again, what are we dealing with? Are we dealing with a brain injury? Or are we uh, dealing with a brain stem injury? And so as a result, pupils are very important, but they don't tell us where in the brain that could be happening. And, and are there any blood tests that may be helpful in the future that show inflammation uh, that uh, you think that could help us? There, there are no blood tests that are traditionally used. There are non-traditional blood tests uh, Cyrex Labs uh, actually has one. It's called the uh, Blood Brain Barrier Breach. I believe it's Cyrex Array 20. And what happens is that we're able to show that there are inflammation markers that may show that that uh, brain barrier is not reclosing off. And as a result, what happens is when we get a concussion, the blood brain barrier opens up and the gut uh, barrier opens up because that patient, that person is in survival mode. And so when they're in survival mode, that body is just trying to make everything work to keep it alive. And then what happens is that within, say, five to seven days to 10 days, all of that should come back to normal where you, you still now have your uh, blood-brain barrier. But oftentimes in these patients, that doesn't get sealed off. And that's what this uh, Array 20 will show. And that's Cyrex, C-Y-R-E-X. Correct. And is that something that sometimes you order or do you work with somebody that orders Cyrex? Because I'm pretty familiar with them. Yeah, so in the state of Iowa, I can order that. But you see, it's non-traditional, so insurance does not pay for it, so it's an out-of-pocket expense. I don't know of a traditional test that can be done uh, that would show that. We certainly can look at homocysteine marker. We could look at sed rate. We look at, you know, 89% of people who get a concussion may have a thyroid affect, so we want to look at 
the thyroid markers, in particular the TPO antibodies, which looks at the Hashimoto's or an autoimmune disorder. So there are things that we can look at, but there's not something that specifically says you've got a concussion. And how about a PET scan and MRI? So uh, with the, the, both the PET scan and MRI, uh, probably your closer ones that are gonna show you better is gonna be a SPEC scan. Most SPEC scans are done by Daniel Amen at the Amen Clinics. Uh, and what that does is that looks at circulation uh, or a DTI. Uh, though DTI and SPEC scans are probably uh, going to be coming up the ranks um, as something that we look at with those concussion patients. So there's about 70 million kids in the U.S. and about 30 million of them play sports. Which are the sports that give us the greatest risk for a concussion? Well, it's your high contact sports. So your soccer, football, hockey, you know, even table tennis can give you a concussion. So what are some of the things we wanna think about is that first of all, if we're not allowing our kids to play, their brain's not gonna grow. So we can't wrap them up in bubble wrap and send them out in the world and have any expectation that they're gonna grow. We've got to have sports, we've got to have movement, we have to have that contact, but can we make it so that it's safer? The answer is yes. And part of that's going to be conditioning uh, where we condition our athletes maybe a little bit better uh, if we can take certain things out of play. Uh, will you do a bad example? I would not recommend in soccer that any uh, child under the age of 18 should be doing headers. You know, if we did that, we would reduce the amount of concussions uh, in our high schools. And how about football? How much does the helmet really help? Uh, the helmet, it does nothing for concussion. It's, a, it's there for skull fracture. So what ends up happening is the helmet's very good at reducing skull fractures. It doesn't do anything about a concussion because once again, a concussion is that sloshing around of the brain inside the skull. And so what happens is that you have a hit, your acceleration is moving you forward, they have a hit, and that starts to move you backwards, but the brain is still moving forward and it hits the forward part and then it does a coup contra coup kind of injury. And so that would be the simplest way to, to describe it, but it also has a shearing effect. So what happens is that when that tissue moves forward, it elongates and it causes those neurons to shear. And then when it moves back uh, again, it'll shear again. That's the concussion. That is the functional affect. We don't have any way of testing for that at this point in time to see what kind of damage we have. And how about when it's more rotational, uh, rotation yes. injury? Yeah, so in the literature and, and in the studies, it shows that the linear type of affect does not cause a concussion. It's the rotational affect that causes that concussion. And that's why sometimes you can't always decide with these sensors on the helmet, which hit is the hit that caused someone to have a concussion. It's indeterminable because sometimes they'll get a concussion and it didn't have a, enough G-force to do anything. And it could be the culmination of it, or it can be the physicality of it, meaning that neck turning, a blindsided hit, something of that nature. There was a study called the DTEC study that showed that kids less than 12 that play football have a greater risk of having cognitive impairment as they get older. Uh, uh, tackle football, are you, as a, as a physician who's an expert in this area, do you think that kids should wait till, based on this study, that kids should wait till after 12 to play tackle? Well, there was a lot of problems. There, there's a lot of problems with any of the studies, but there's a lot of problems with the studies where Let's say you have uh, an individual player that is uh, petite, uh, underweight, 
uh, thin neck, you put a huge helmet on them and send them out into play, it's going to com be completely different than the kid that's um, you know more well-built, has better musculature, both in their neck and their back and their legs. So we're looking at kind of two different kinds of genetics, uh, perhaps in that. We're also looking at different uh, kinds of um, uh, fitness. You know, a lot of times these kids are playing on their cell phones, they're on the sofa and suddenly they turn to mom and dad and they go, I wanna play football. And they say, great. And they throw them out into football before we get them into any type of condition. So um, I think that we do run into a problem when young people are getting into a contact sport where they neither are physically capable of being in that uh, contact sport and quite frankly, that brain is still developing. So I think each individual and each parent needs to take a look at that individually and see what they wanna do. But we have mental health issues that we have to worry about too. If our kids don't move, then their brain, their brain does not develop. In, in boxing, uh, a heavyweight punch is about a 60 G force, uh, a, a force. And football, you know, the average play, football player is getting hit with 80 times a year with 60 to 80 G-forces. Uh, what can we do to help these people? Well, already the colleges and uh, universities uh, take uh, contact out of the, the practice. So there's less contact in practice because really, I forget, there's a high percentage of those concussions occurring in practice sessions as opposed to games. And so it's such a high contact uh, sport when you're in practice. So uh, I think it was Dartmouth that came out with uh, less contact in their practicing and they ended up winning as, as much or better by taking out some of those contacts. So I think you have to take a look at once again, how you're conditioning them, uh, what kind of conditioning you're doing and taking some of that impact out, uh, but also then looking at um, how are we hydrating? How are they fit? How are they eating? How are they sleeping? You know, there was a study that was done where they took 2,000 kids uh, that were concussed and they looked at their eye movements and they could determine that 80% of them had had a concussion through that eye movement. They also took 2,000 kids that had no history of a contact sport and no history of a concussion and they gave them sleep deprivation over a period of two to four days and it showed the same kind of eye movement problem. So what I'm saying is that the brain is in on it all. And some of the difficulty is, is that if these kids aren't sleeping, which a lot of athletes may not, then that creates them uh, for a tendency to be more at risk. You mentioned eating, sleeping. What kind of diet is recommended for, to help prevent concussions? What other type of lifestyle? I know you said sleeping is very important. Uh, taking omega-3s, vitamin D, any of these things important to help prevent, even doing, there was a study at University of Cincinnati that showed that vision training uh, skills can actually help prevent people from getting sports injuries because they have better peripheral awareness. So if you could comment on that. Absolutely. Well, first of all, let me comment on, they're, they're absolutely, so uh, a concussion with no solutions, hysteria. And at this point in time, we do have solutions. Uh, we know that we need to, first of all, have them uh, sleeping better. Uh, we need to have them uh, working out better. But one of the things, there was a study in 2015 by Joe Clark, uh, he started out with 20 concussions a year and by using sports vision performance two weeks prior to his season in five years he went from 20 uh, concussions down to one and that one concussion lasted seven days so from that by doing sports vision performance and doing things that ready that athlete both in their vision and in their uh, body we can get them so we can reduce those concussions 
Secondly, we got to look at nutrition and 50% of these athletes um, are low in magnesium. And what ends up happening is that magnesium is extremely helpful in getting that brain to work. And so when we do have a concussed kid, at least here, I recommend magnesium 20 minutes before they go to bed. It helps them sleep, helps to re-up uh, that brain. And so what happens is we've got to take a look at these supplements and make sure we're giving our kids good stuff. You know, a bowl of spinach back in 1953 um, had more nutrients to it than 43 bowls of spinach today. So our food source today has been compromised. And so one of the ways to keep our kids zero to 100 years of age going is that we've got to have good nutrition and good supplement. So vitamin D3, omega-3, a good multivitamin, uh, and then we've got to have exercise. And if we don't move them, anytime I have a concussion, whether it's, uh, you know, 85-year-old uh, Mabel or 16-year-old Jane, I got to, if they refuse to move, I won't be able to get them better. And as far as prevention goes, uh, is it the same advice? Absolutely. So once again, we want to get these kids fit. Uh, we want to make sure. So once, once a kid has a concussion and they're out of play, even three days, they are no longer physically fit. So not only do we have to, uh, first of all, do an appropriate concussion protocol and putting them into rest uh, for an indefinite amount of time is not the way to do this. A lot of times they say, well, when you're, when you no longer have symptoms, then come back and see me. Nope, nope. Within zero to three days, we leave them in rest. And then after that, we do symptom limiting uh, types of movement and symptom uh, limiting cognitive types of things to get them going. Because the further down we leave them in rest, the harder they are uh, to get back up and running. And then the other problem comes into play with concussion is depression and anxiety. And the problem is this can come around very suddenly. So if you have a student athlete uh, that doesn't have a problem with depression, and anxiety, because they work out a lot, they temper it. Now you take away their skill level to be able to do that with a concussion. And we start to see the anxiety and depression rise. We've got to figure out how then we help that student athlete temper that and get back into their sport and get back to school. We talked about the, the, uh, the study that would decrease concussion by doing sports vision therapy. What were some of the exercises they did to actually increase uh, better vision, better peripheral awareness to, to help them prevent concussion? Yeah, absolutely what you said. You're gonna open up that peripheral awareness. So what happens when a student athlete feels like they have flow going on where the game slows down and they can see every play that goes on? That's because we've been able to, to temper down that uh, uh, top up kind of thing and, and be able to get them to open up their periphery and slow the game down. And now they're working with just a subconscious level of play. And it becomes that automaticity is there. And that's, that's, that's something that's trained. So vision is a skill. Balance is a skill. We have to train all of that in those types of um, uh, conditions. And as a result, we can see that eye-hand coordination does correlate to better movement and to open up that periphery would be one thing. Let's talk about some common non-eye symptoms of a concussion, headache being the most common, but what are some of the other things that we need to look at, you know, if our child maybe gets into an injury or somebody gets into a car accident, somebody falls, they, you know, maybe they're, they're checked out by somebody, they say they're okay, but what are some of the symptoms they may have? Sure, dizziness at the time of an incident uh, will indicate to a protracted recovery. So somebody who comes out of the car and says they're dizzy or out of a hit and they're dizzy, first of all, they gotta be pulled from play if we're, if we're looking at a sport. And then what ends up happening, we know with that dizziness, 
that it's going to be a protracted recovery. It's going to take me a month to get that student athlete back into play. So dizziness is a big one. Um, edgy. A lot of things that uh, parents will say is my son or daughter is edgy or they're snappy. Uh, they just don't seem to have much joy. So we've got that edginess about them. Um, uh, their appetite might change. Uh, they're, you're also looking at sleep. Either they're really wanting to sleep a lot or not sleep at all. And how about like being in a fog, feeling like you're in a fog? Yeah, so the brain fog is a big one uh, from the standpoint of they, they feel like everything around them is moving faster uh, or that they just can't get a handle on the next thing. So foggy brain is a big one. And about 90% of the concussions, the prefrontal cortex is affected. That's absolutely correct. And that's because when it gets that shearing and that momentum, you know, going forward and coming back, uh, like I said, about 90% of folks will have a prefrontal cortex problem. That's where we get into depression and anxiety unless we can address this early. And, and what are some of the, the signs and symptoms besides anxiety of depression of a prefrontal cortex injury? Uh, some of the things you can look at if you watch their gait. So these, uh, so what we know is that seven days after a concussion, they still have a gait problem. And if we're looking at arm swing, arm swing is going to be connected to that frontal lobe. And we can kind of see if they have a decreased uh, arm swing on the right or left side, then we're concerned about that frontal lobe. We're looking at their gait. They can have gait problems up to 30 days. And some of the some of the things that you know balance memory these type of problems are very are very common as well. That's absolutely correct. And memory would not be um, so far away because obviously that's frontal lobe, and so as a result you have short term and long term memory, and they have a lot of difficulty with that. One of the things I'm very concerned about is second impact syndrome. Could you explain that and why it's so worrisome? Yeah, that's why when once again, there's suspicion of injury uh, and they have now spotters and people that are trying to do a better job of watching that. We want to pull that student athlete from play and we want to assess what's going on. Now, the problem is, is a lot of times they, we emerge out of our injury. So we have to know that when we see that person walking oddly, making an odd comment, they have that starry look in their eye, looking at their pupils, whether or not they're having that hippus. We got to pull that student athlete from play. We sit them off to the side and periodically then over the next few minutes, we're going to keep checking them because the problem is their adrenaline runs. Yeah, coach, I'm fine. I'm fine. Send me in, send me in, send me in. And they don't really realize that they do have an injury. So that's why we have to be uh, sitting them out. So one of the terms I have them say, instead of saying this kid has a concussion, the minute you say the C word, it's a problem. He's a no-go coach. He's not going back in. He's a no-go. And if you do that, then once again, we can leave it so that we don't have to put so much uh, emotion around concussion. And second impact. Uh, second impact is where we got to worry about Sometimes uh, before we've had the rule. Well, once you have a suspicion of a concussion, then you have to pull them out from play and they cannot go back into play that same day. If we have a student athlete, what we find is if they've had a concussion is that within, if we even leave them in 15 minutes longer with that concussion, it'll take up to 45 days to get them better. And so the second thing that happens here is that if you get a second injury, their chance of having a bleed and having that uh, CTE kind of affect or that second impact, that person's risk of life is eminent. And that's why we have to know when to pull that kid from play. I mean, that's the point. If they're less than 20, they could die from second impact. Absolutely. And we've had it. We've seen it happen.
Wow. And you mentioned hippus. Explain what hippus is. It's something that we're- Sure, that's at. where the pupils uh, are um, constricting and, and dilating uh, quite a bit. So a lot of times when I've had uh, young people come in, the dad will say, yeah, when I went to go to my son, um, his eyes were big, they were small, they were big, they were small. That's that hippus, that's a brainstem uh, jolt. That's why those pupils are responding in that fashion. That's why we have light sensitivity. That's why we have sound sensitivity. Once again, we've gotta be taking a look at that brainstem affect and see how we, uh, we help them get better. So that's that parasympathetic sympathetic system. So the autonomic, the autonomic nervous system is going to be hit hard. And what happens then is that the brain, a simple way to say this is that parasympathetic system is controlled by the brain and the sympathetic system is always on. So what happens is that in a fight or flight, because you don't want to be eaten by the lion, uh, something happens and we immediately go into fight or flight. With the potential of a concussion, sometimes these systems are not coming out of that sympathetic problem and they're remaining in it. We've got to bring, bring that student athlete down out of that sympathetic they're not sleeping, they're not eating, they're edgy, they have light sensitivity, sound sensitivity. That's all related to that autonomic nervous system. And post-concussion syndrome affects about two and a half percent of the concussion patients. Uh, what is it? How long does it typically last and can it last years? Yeah, so post-concussion symptom uh, uh, is, a, is a diagnosis so that once again, after 30 days, of someone having continued symptoms, now they're in a post-concussion symptom difficulty. What they're seeing right now, though, is that within zero to three days, we want to be pulling these kids and adults out of rest. And by seven days, we want to be doing something. So if we have an adult that still at seven to 10 days has a lot of symptoms, they're already moving into a post-concussion problem. Now, they're changing that terminology to call, be called uh, persistent concussion symptoms. And what we need to do is work with that uh, patient and student athlete to get them out of that. So post-concussion uh, symptoms can last years and they can come on at any point in time where someone can be resolved from. So once again, there's no myth to concussion, no number to concussion if we resolve that concussion. But a lot of times what happens is that we are not doing appropriate concussion management and we're sending these student athletes in too soon. And then there becomes a concussion threshold. And that's where these uh, patients then are easily succumb back to a concussion problem because we didn't resolve the first one. There's been very famous uh, football players that have committed suicide because they've been so miserable because of their CTE. Uh, Dave Durison, who used to play for the Bears, who was on the Super Bowl, he shot himself in the chest to leave his brain for science. What do they find in the brain of these people? What happens? Yeah, so uh, what ends up kind of what's similar. So when we're in doing a lot of activity, our brain releases a product called BDNF, which is like fertilizer for the brain. So what ends up happening is we have a continued insult to that brain. Then what happens is the brain can no longer regenerate itself. And so what happens is that the white and gray matter gets reduced. And as a result, then we have a reduction in those neurons. If we have a reduction in the volume of that brain, then once again, it's harder and harder for people to be able to do certain kinds of tasks. And so what happens is that they get depression, they can have anxiety, um, you know, that frontal lobe is no longer making executive functions like it should. Uh, we might have tremors because the cerebellum's involved. So it's a global brain affect that begins to degenerate. And when they looked at their brains on autopsy, what did they see? 
Uh, well, it, it just the volume of the brain is greatly reduced. And then they saw places where you have less white matter. And then you also have what's called tangles. So what happens is that that's a non-functional uh, type of aspect of the brain. So even in like dementia or um, um, Parkinson's disease, what happens is the brain tries to offload that and, and seal them off. And it may not be successful in that. And therefore, those parts of that brain are no longer functional. And how about beta amyloid? Will they see more beta amyloid in the brain? Uh, that's what they've, they've found when they've done their autopsies, yes. So let's, let's turn our attention to the anatomy of concussion in the eye. And you talked about before where uh, a, a large percentage of the, uh, the parts of, of the eye and the brain are connected. 90% uh, of people who have had concussion will have some type of eye symptom. So if you could talk about that. Sure, so 70% of our brain's dedicated to vision in some fashion. If you add uh, visual processing, you'll find that it's about 100% of the brain. And then 80% of all sensory goes through the eyes with the other 20% going to balance and touch and feel and vibration. And so 90 plus uh, percent of people will have some sort of visual affect connected to concussion, traumatic brain injury, um, stroke or neurodegenerative disease. So what ends up happening is we see that a lot of times this is spatial too. What happens if I don't know where I am in space, I don't know where it is in space, I won't be able to locate it. So we're, we're, uh, we have a disconnect between our peripheral visual system and our uh, vestibular system. So when we're born, our vestibular system is fully myelinated at seven weeks of inception. At the time that we're born, then our vestibular system and our peripheral vision system are fully myelinated. And then within three to six months, the central vision comes online. When we have a disturbance, like a concussion, traumatic brain injury stroke, what happens is they go offline in the direction, in the order to which embryologically they came online. So our central vision, peripheral vision, and our vestibular system disconnect. And that's where we get these um, symptoms and this mismatch in our system. And that's what's causing that to persist in the concussion. So what we have to do is we have to figure out what part of the brain works appropriately and then be able to reroute it so that we can use neuroplasticity to get that brain to operate better. So let's talk about some of the eye symptoms. Let's talk about photophobia, uh, sensitivity to light. How long does it usually last? Is there anything we could do about it or a tense helpful? Sure. So uh, if we do symptom treatment, then we're looking at a big brimmed hat for light sensitivity. We're looking at a big brimmed hat. We're looking at tense. Um, but if we're looking at a solve, we have to look at the potential of the brainstem being part of the difficulty with that light sensitivity. And we have to look at the superior colliculus, which is, which is vision. And then the inferior, uh, uh, superior, the inferior colliculus is then sound. And if we can combine some therapies in order to use what's already working to get those areas of the brain that are either not working efficiently or don't have fuel, that's how we do therapy for them. So for instance, I might be able to solve a difficulty with someone with light sensitivity by doing eye-hand uh, coordinating types of things on top of a vestibular activity. Very interesting. Now, how about migraines? Is the headaches that people get from a concussion and TBI, is it migraine? Is it different? Can it induce a migraine? So I'm not the best diagnostician about migraines. It's not within my repertoire, but with the headache affect, there's a new study that came out that people who get headaches from a concussion and then get those resolved, 
that those headaches can come back again in a year without having an injury. So what we're talking about is how that blood supply gets to that brain. And it's not so long ago, 2015, that we've decided that we now have a lymph system in the brain. It used to be from the neck down. But we have a lymph system in the brain. And what happens is that when that becomes clogged up or when the um, blood supply to the brain is not working effectively, that's where we can get this rehit of headaches. So what we have to take a look at is deciding whether or not there's more blood getting to the brain and it's causing the headache or unless there's blood being shunted away. And once we can figure out what that affect is, then we can try and do various different types of therapies to get them better. Cranial sacral is one of them. Cranial sacral does the lymph drainage for the brain and a very talented cranial sacral person will be able to help someone with a, a concussion headache. Uh, somebody else would be an athletic trainer who does dry needling. Uh, they are very effective in being help, helping these patients with headaches. And about 70% of concussed patients have binocular vision problems. One of it is, is double vision. And sometimes it's caused from a convergence of insufficiency uh, that's maybe not recognized. So if you could explain about that. Yeah, so the diagnosis of concussion and treatment, it's not the visual acuity, it's not the VA. A lot of these people have 20-20 vision. It's the near point of convergence. And what happens is that as, those, um, as that object is coming at someone, what ends up happening, we have near uh, point of convergence. And if that eye strays away, is it a, a weak muscle? Uh, is it um, because of space? We don't know where we are in space. But when we're converging, also our neck muscles do that as well. So if we have a cervical injury, we can have a, a near point of convergence problem. If we have a spatial problem where we don't know where we are in space, uh, near point of convergence will be affected as well. And how, and how about causing double vision? Absolutely. So some people will say blurred vision, double vision. But yes, the, uh, double vision is absolutely one of the top ones that we have to remedy in order to get these student athletes better. And if it affects the midbrain, how does that change things? Or is that just part of the virgin system? So, the, so yeah, so the, when we do a convergence type of activity, that's absolutely with the midbrain. We can use other types of tools in order to get them better. If it's truly a spatial problem, actually, as they're bringing that object in, if they put their finger on top of that object and follow it in, more than likely now they'll know where they are in space. So we have to remember that vision is sensory, but it was built on a motor base. And a lot of times if we enter in that motor, we can help get that person better. And when we're talking about convergence, we're talking about our eyes coming in. How about diverging our eyes, making our eyes go out to look sure. at something far away? Sure. So the, the idea of focusing far away and up close and converging, that's all with accommodation. It's all with the pupil and also involves in the eye muscles. And so as a result, we have that triad. And a lot of times that triad is connected to the peripheral um, system. And as a result, when they don't work well together, it's because we're not sure where we are in space. So accommodation is actually a spatial problem. Near point of convergence is a spatial problem. And so that's all connected. Fitting multifocal contact lenses presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner, not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy. Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat. 
es natural y es un buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I bring extra and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You. And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me and you.